iTunes presents Meet the Author. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome once again to the Apple Store Soho. We're pleased that you could join us for tonight's special Meet the Author event. Uh, this event is the latest in our Meet the Author series, which gives authors a chance to discuss their latest books with you and uh, engage in a bit of dialogue, take questions, and read some of their work. Uh, so we're very pleased to have you here this evening. Uh, tonight, we're very excited to have celebrated author Candace Bushnell here to share a piece of her latest work of fiction, One Fifth Avenue. Candace is the critically acclaimed best-selling author of Sex in the City, Four Blondes, and Lipstick Jungle. One Fifth Avenue is another look at the tough and tender women of New York City, this time through the lens of where they live. Uh, before I turn it over to Candace, I want to let everyone know that tonight's event is being recorded for a special Meet the Author podcast, which you'll be able to download from iTunes in addition to uh, Candace's audiobook. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Candace Bushnell. Okay, so I'm going to read a little bit from my new book, One Fifth Avenue, uh, which has just become a New York Times bestseller, which we're all very excited about. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the characters in One Fifth Avenue, uh, because they range in, in age and attitude. There is Lola Fabricant, who is 22 years old, and she's come to New York to find an apartment in the West Village and her own Mr. Big. Uh, she, she gets some unexpected surprises when she comes to New York. It's not quite as easy to get ahead as she thought it would be. Then there is Annalisa Rice, who is in her early 30s. And she started off as a lawyer. And her husband was a mathematician. He was scouted by a hedge fund and he's just become a hedge fund manager and has made an enormous amount of money which she's trying to deal with um obviously i finished writing the book a couple of months ago um and then there is mindy gooch who is my favorite character she's in her early 40s this is a woman who we all know it's the woman who she basically does it all she has a fairly high-powered career but she's kind of hit a glass ceiling she has a son who she's very invested in and she has a husband who is a not quite successful literary novelist and Mindy has to do everything and she's gotten pretty sick and tired of it so in the book she has a network kind of a epiphany moment where she just realizes that you know on top of having to do everything she's tired of having to pretend that she's happy as well so she starts a blog about her life and how she's like, you know, tired of this imposed happiness. She does end up finding her own kind of happiness at the end of the book. And then there is Shepherd Diamond, who's an actress in her late 40s, who's come back to New York to restart her career and hopefully hook up with an old love. And then there's Enid Merle, 
who is a gossip columnist, and she's 83. She is kind of the puppeteer in the novel One-Fifth. She kind of pulls the strings and, and makes things happen. She knows everything about everyone in, in New York and, and how it all works. So I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of the book, and then we will do questions and answers. Shifford Diamond has taken a part in a TV series, Enid Merle said to her nephew, Philip Oakland. She must be desperate, Philip said, half-jokingly. Enid and Philip occupied two of the second-best apartments in one-fifth, located on the 13th floor with adjoining terraces, separated by a charming white picket fence. It was across this fence that Enid now spoke to her nephew. It may be a very good part, Enid countered, consulting the piece of paper she held in her hand. She's going to play a mother superior who leaves the church to become the editor-in-chief of a magazine for teenagers. Now there's a believable concept, Philip said, with the sarcasm he reserved for most matters Hollywood, about as believable as a giant reptile that terrorizes New York. I wish you would quit writing screenplays and go back to writing serious novels, Enid scolded. Can't, Philip said with a smile. I'm desperate. Well, I just spoke to Roberto, Enid said, referring to the head doorman. Schiffer Diamond may be coming back today. A housekeeper was seen in her apartment this week, getting it ready. Roberto says she may be moving back permanently. Isn't that exciting? I'm thrilled, Philip said. I wonder how she'll find New York, Enid said, having been away for so long. Exactly the same, Auntie Philip said. You know New York never changes. The characters are different, but the play remains the same. Later that afternoon, Enid Merle was putting the finishing touches on her daily gossip column when a sudden gust of wind slammed shut the door to her terrace. Crossing the room to open it, Enid caught sight of the sky and stepped outside. A mountain of thunderclouds had built up on the other side of the Hudson River and was rapidly approaching the city. This was unusual, Enid thought, as the early July day hadn't been particularly hot. Gazing upward, Enid spotted her neighbor, Mrs. Louise Houghton, who was on her own terrace, wearing an old straw hat and holding a pair of gardening shears in her gloved hand. In the last five years, Louise Houghton, who was nearing 100, had slowed down, spending most of her time attending to her prize-winning roses. Hello, Enid called loudly to Mrs. Houghton, who was known to be slightly deaf. Looks like we're in for a big thunderstorm. Thank you, dear, Mrs. Houghton said graciously, as if she were a queen addressing one of her loyal subjects. Enid would have been annoyed if not for the fact that this was Mrs. Houghton's standard response to just about everyone now. You may want to go inside, Enid said. Despite Mrs. Houghton's quaint grandeur, which was off-putting to some, Enid was fond of the old lady, the two having been neighbors for over 60 years. Thank you, dear, Mrs. Houghton said again, and might have gone inside, but for a flock of pigeons that flew abruptly out of Washington Square Park, diverting her attention. In the next second, the sky turned black, and rain the size of pellets began to pummel Fifth Avenue, Enid hurried inside, losing sight of Mrs. Houghton, who was struggling against the rain on her spindly old legs. 
Another strong gust of wind released a lattice screen from its moorings and knocked the elegant old lady to her knees. Lacking the strength to stand, Louise Houghton turned sideways onto her hip, shattering the fragile bone and preventing further movement. For several minutes, she lay in the rain until one of her four maids, unable to locate Mrs. Houghton in the vast 7,000-square-foot apartment, ventured outside and discovered her under the lattice. Meanwhile, on the street below, two town cars were slowly making their way down Fifth Avenue like a small cortege. When they reached 1-5th, the drivers got out and hunched against the rain and shoutings instructions and oaths began pulling out the luggage. The first piece was an old-fashioned Louis Vuitton steamer trunk that required the efforts of two men to lift. Roberto, the doorman, hurried out, paused under the awning, and called for backup before waving the men inside. A porter came up from the basement, pushing a large cart with brass poles. The drivers heaved the trunk onto the cart, and then one after another, each piece of matching luggage was piled on top. Down the street, a strong gust of wind ripped an umbrella out of the hands of a businessman, turning it inside out. It scuttled across the pavement like a witch's broom, coming to rest on the wheel of a shiny black SUV that had just pulled up to the entrance. Spotting the passenger in the back seat, Roberto decided to brave the rain. Picking up a green and white golf umbrella, he brandished it like a sword as he hurried out from under the awning. Reaching the SUV, he angled it expertly against the wind so as to protect the emerging passenger. A blue and green brocade shoe with a kitten heel appeared, followed by the famous long legs, clad in narrow white jeans, then a hand with the slim, elegant fingers of an artist. On the middle finger was a large aquamarine ring. At last, Schiffer Diamond herself got out of the car. She hadn't changed at all, Roberto thought, taking her hand to help her out. Hello, Roberto, she said as easily as if she'd been gone for two weeks instead of 20 years. Crap weather, isn't it? Thank you. Oh, does anyone have a question? Well, given that we haven't read the book, what would you say, and you know we're going to ask this question, um, is the age relationship between the characters that you're writing about now and the ones that you were writing about when you created Sex in the City? I mean, what's the, is there a, a similarity except for the increase, you know, the difference in, in age? Oh, you mean is there a similarity between sex the and the characters? City and, yeah, the ones um, that we grew to love. You know, I've I I always think that I write about tend to write about female characters, and tend obviously to write about female characters in New York City, and I guess New York City is is kind of my muse. And I find the women here just endlessly interesting and endlessly fascinating. So the reality is that the, the characters in all of my books are, are different. You know, they're the four wonderful characters in Sex and the City. Um, in Four Blondes, those are, are four actually completely different kinds of characters. Uh, those, those characters are a little bit more of a warning of of how you may not want to end up. Um, the character in Trading Up is Janie Wilcox, 
who I would sort of describe as everybody's nightmare best friend. Uh, you know, the kind of best friend who sleeps with your boyfriend to find out if he's a cheater. <laughs> and, and, you know, the characters in, in Lipstick Jungle uh, were really inspired by women I know in New York City who are in their, were in their early 40s and, you know, had been working hard for 20 years and, you know, had come to a place where their careers were really starting to take off. And so they have a whole different kind of set of issues to deal with. And in One Fifth Avenue, again, it's, it's a different cast of both male and female characters. And, and I think that they're interesting and wonderful um, and, and, and well-delineated. And they are of, of different ages. And what they have in common is that they all live in the same co-op in New York City or aspire to live there. And, you know, One Fifth Avenue is, it's a real building in New York. It's a building that uh, when I first moved to New York, I went to NYU and I used to pass by one-fifth all the time. And it, it certainly is a building that people walk by, especially young people, and say, gosh, you know, I wonder if I could live there someday or someday I'm going to live in a building like that. So I think it's a, a building that it nourishes your dreams when you're young and, and struggling in New York and, and, you know, trying to find your place. It has a, a certain kind of power and you know another aspect of of one fifth avenue is you know I, some of the characters are middle-aged and they really are dealing with the issues of being middle-aged you know wondering how their lives have have turned out um in the sense of whether or not they have fulfilled their dreams whether or not their dreams turned out to be what they didn't expect, um, and whether or not those dreams are still valuable, and you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do in the next chapter of their lives, and um, you know, and like New York City, you know, there there is a, a you know conflicts in a sense between you know the twenty somethings and and the forty somethings. And I think that's something that's always true in New York. It's a city where people come to make it. They still come to make it. And one of the themes of the book is about how the, how the new replaces the old, and yet the city doesn't really change. Another question. Yes. Thank you. I saw the filming yesterday on West Broadway for Lipstick Jungle, and so I was just wondering how often you are around for the filming and what it's like to see your written words being played out by the um, actors. Well, it's, it's, it's terrific, and I, I love Lipstick Jungle. Um, it was a lot of work to get it on network television. I think I've been working on it for least three years um, I 
I'm an executive producer, so I, I do try to go to the set two or three times a week. I read all the scripts and and get the dailies and watch all the different cuts. And um, I haven't been able to go for two weeks because I'm on the road. I've been on a book tour. So I should ask you, how was it? <laughs> Did it look good? Did everyone look happy? Um, you know, so I, I try to go two or three times a week and and it's exciting. I mean, one of the the facts about TV is that it's a collaborative, truly, truly a collaborative medium um, as opposed to writing a novel, which is, is something that, you know, just one person does. And in in TV, it takes the efforts of, you know, so many talented and dedicated people and the hours are long. Um, and I don't, I, I worked on the pilot script for Lipstick Jungle, but I don't, I don't write scripts and I, I didn't write scripts for Sex and the City, although I worked with the writers for the first two seasons. So on every TV show, there's what's called the writer's room. And I think on Sex and the City, we started with four writers. And I think on Lipstick Jungle, it's an hour drama. So we have about 14 writers. Um, so it's, it goes at a very fast pace. And, you know, they, they have to... There's a new script every... About every two weeks. You know, we start... Start in June. So it's exciting. And, and and it's always fantastic to see how the characters evolve and, and you know, the places that the writers go. And, you know, in a lot of ways, a TV show is affected by the audience. And, you know, characters that the audience responds to um, are obviously characters that you know, the executives want to keep on the show. So, for instance, the character of Kirby Atwood, who in the book, Lipstick Jungle, um, was, a, was more of a secondary character and, and someone who Nico doesn't end up going back to. On the TV series, Lipstick Jungle, the audience, you know, loves him. And they seem to love seeing him without his shirt on. So he's now in every episode, and I think he has to have his shirt off in every episode, which we, we make a joke about. So, uh, another question. Yes. Did you always see the design of that book cover? Um, on this particular book cover, I just approved it. But I don't design the book covers. I make suggestions, and because it's very symbolic, um, uh, there's, a, there's a street in, in in Hamburg, Germany, called the Raperbahn, mm -hmm. where women sit in the window, yes, and receive men. Is that symbolic, subliminally? For um, you? you know, actually, more people have pointed out the red carpet to me, and the the artist is English, and she submitted this design for the cover, and we loved it, and we just felt that it was the right cover. 
Um, I, I like to think it looks a little bit, yeah, it looks a little bit like Madeline or a little bit Eloise, Eloise at the Plaza-ish. So that's how I see it. Uh, another question. Um, ambitious women. Um, and I was wondering, given the current political landscape, if you see a correlation between your having, hopefully, advanced women's uh, power in society and importance. Um, I think that, you know, as a novelist, one would, you know, kind of dream of, of having that effect. But I, th I think that my books more reflect the times that we're in. And, you know, for me, Sex and the City came out of a, a very specific time, um, you know, 30 years ago when I moved to New York uh, to have a career and, and have it all coming out of 70s feminism. And there was a huge influx at that time of women into the workforce and even in you know in the 1980s i was writing about this quest of of women to have it all and you know dating in a time where it was it was in some ways uncharted territory because women weren't they weren't going from their homes to college and immediately going to you know, make a home with a man. They were going out into the workforce and it, 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 it somehow seemed to correlate at a time when all of a sudden there was something, I don't know if you remember this, it was called the commitment crisis where, you know, when women were working and earning a living, then the, the, the corollary was that all of a sudden men didn't want to marry them or that men couldn't make a commitment. And, and this was in the 1980s. Um, and at that time, I started writing for women's magazines and started writing pieces that were precursors to Sex in the City. And it was about this generation of women um, who were, you know, trying to have careers, trying to find a man and trying to figure out, you know, how to do it, how to date. Um, in a time when, you know, women were encouraged in a way to have premarital sex, which, you know, they certainly hadn't been encouraged to do in the 1960s or, you know, the 1950s. So it was really a, a new generation. And in the 90s, when I started writing Sex in the City in the early 90s, those women who had come to New York in the early 80s were in their 30s. And many of them had not found partners and were something new, which was the single woman in her 30s. And there was a lot of consternation about this single woman in her 30s. You know, people thought, does she have baggage? Is she too smart and too educated? Is she too successful? And, uh, you know, because women, you know, women didn't, the women that I knew anyway in New York City um, had a hard time finding permanent partners for a variety of reasons, there was a huge amount of female bonding. And it, New York City is a place where 
um, I think it's it's hard to survive as a woman if you don't have a lot of, of female friends and female support. So it really, it came out of, of oops, sorry, that reality. And I've just tried to continue to do that with my books is, is you know, to write about contemporary life. And, you know, I think now there are, you know, it's it's kind of the, the the baby boom generation and the tail end of of the baby boom generation, where there are women in the in the workplace who have been working for twenty years or you know twenty five years. They've they've put in the time, and you know, uh, and these are all women who have just you know become successful. You know, following the their career path, and as they become more successful you know, more influential and, and, you know, we see them, we see more and more women in positions of power, although, you know, that may be a, a little bit false because I think it's, you know, you know, we still, it's still only about 20% of the population of women is, you know, lawyers and you know, in politics and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think we're, we're open to it. I think we're more open to it. And, I mean, one of the things that I've seen is that people seem to be more open about flexible gender roles. Um, I mean, I see more and more women who, you know, are the breadwinners and and their husbands stay home and take care of the kids. And I think it's... You know, I, I mean, I, I think that the fluidity is good for men and women. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that we will see more and more women out there. Yes. I have not read your book, but I'm aware of the, the series. And I'm wondering... Um, I've, you created the characters in your book, and when it gets into the movie version, do you have a say about what the writers, how the writers will rewrite a story, right? Because they're using your characters, mm -hmm. and then they create a new storyline, I'm assuming. And um, you know, I've always been just thrilled with Sex and the City. Um, and and the writers who've worked on Sex and the City and and the actresses. So I've I've been very lucky. But you know, technically, a novelist doesn't usually have any say over what's done with you know with the property once it's sold. You know, as a as a writer, you sell the rights and. You know, on Lipstick Jungle, I'm an executive producer, so I am involved in, you know, some of the decisions. But at the same time, you know, the studios who put up the money for these projects are very involved. And, you know, it's, it's probably the studios that have the ultimate say. So everybody works with the studios. Um, but, you know, it's like most, most things in life. You know, the, the kind of the bottom line is, you know, the person who puts up the money for it in some ways has, 
you know, the most, the most say over it, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, again, I've, I've been actually lucky to work with great people. I mean, I, I love the women at NBC and they're fantastic to work with. And, you know, the people at HBO are brilliant and, you know, New Line, the executives at New Line did a fantastic job with the movie, but you know, it's a collaborative effort. And so all of these people have input and have a say, and there's never one person, you know, Woody Allen may, you know, have ultimate control over his projects, but you know, in general, these are like very, very collaborative efforts. Uh, another question. Yes. I have a question about the book. Um, I read it, and I don't want to give away anything, but I know as an author, you control who all the couples ended up with. Mm -hmm. But as an outsider, were you really happy with that, especially with Mindy and James and Annalisa? Do you I, get I, kind of what I'm asking? Just uh, I saw some couples could have gotten together. I don't know. And Well, yes. I, I actually was really happy with with the way that that the couples ended up i mean I, you know again mindy finds her own version of happiness and i suppose james discovers his own version of hell and it, you know I, one of the things i think about my books is is they are actually satire and they're meant to be, you know, humorous. And, and I just, I think I have a little bit of an absurdist sort of sense of the world, world, sorry, and, and sense of humor. So for me, Mindy Gooch is, is really a comic character. And, and she's, you know, that character is, is really, James and Mindy to me are kind of the comic relief and, you know, so I don't know. I mean, I think what happens to them at the end is just delicious. So I, I'm pleased with it. Uh, another question, yes. Hi. Would you mind talking a bit about how your writing career started and how it led up to the Sex and City column, which was in the New York Observer, I think I seem to recall. Yes. Um, Thanks. You know, my, my writing career, I, I started writing when I was very, very young. And when I was eight, I knew that I wanted to be a novelist. I probably always wanted to be a writer before that, but I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't categorize it. But as a, as a child, I, I was, my sisters and I were always the kids in the neighborhood that were putting on the neighbor, neighborhood plays and, you know, I was always writing little short stories and little plays and, and I have a younger sister. We used to share a room. And so we always used to tell stories, you know, trade off at night, you know, back and forth. Um, we weren't allowed to watch a lot of TV. So that was how we entertained ourselves. And when I was eight, I just knew for some reason that I wanted to be a novelist. So from then on, it was a question of, you know, not what I wanted to do with my life, but how 
to do it and make it a reality. And, you know, I did the, the same things that so many people do. I, I mean, I think when I was 17 or 18, I started sending stories out to publishers. And, you know, this was in the late 70s. So I would go to the library and I would write down the names of agents and editors from a book called Writer's Market. And I would, you know, send out a little story. You know, in those days, Xeroxing seemed to be relatively expensive. So you'd make a couple of Xeroxes, send it out. If it came back, then you'd put it in an envelope and, and send it to someone else. So I did all of the standard things. Um, when I moved to New York when I was 19, I had sent in a children's story to Simon & Schuster. And the editor called me and asked me to come in to her office. Um, so I did, and she said, well, you should definitely be a children's book writer, which, which thrilled me because I had always, you know, pictured myself as, you know, possibly being like a rolled doll or something. And, you know, I certainly loved his books when I was a child. Uh, so that was very exciting, and I wrote a little story for them. I was paid $1,000, and I guess that was, you know, really the beginning of, of my professional career. And then after that, I, I mean, I would literally, you know, go up to anybody who I thought could, you know, maybe hire me to write something and say, you know, can I write something for you? So I started, I worked for, I worked for a publication called New Jewish Times, which was a new, brand new publication in like 1978 or 1979. Um, I, you know, I wrote for other little publications and I would be paid $50 and I put together my clippings and, you know, went and interviewed at magazines. Um, I, and then I ended up when I graduated from NYU, um, I took a job as an assistant at Ladies Home Journal and you know, I think I worked there for like a, maybe a year, a year and a half. And then, you know, I took my little clippings and, and I was a freelance writer. And then I was a staff writer at Self Magazine for about a year and a half. And then I was, you know, a freelance writer. So I, you know, did all of the, the usual things. I supported myself by um, writing for magazines and wrote, you know, novels in my spare time whenever I could and probably wrote, you know, five or six novels and wrote 50 to 100 pages and, and put them in a drawer. And it was actually, I sent, I'd met a woman who was an editor at a publishing house and I, I think I sent her 50 pages of a novel and she said, well, you know, I don't know if, you know, if this would be right for us to publish, but... I have a friend who works for the New York Observer who's an editor there, so she hooked, hooked me up with um, an editor at the New York Observer, and she said, I think this girl's a really good writer, and you, know, you should work with her. So I went into the New York Observer with, uh, I probably had ideas for you know, f five or six different pieces. You know, I went in prepared, and they, loved one of the ideas 
And it meant going to Minneapolis. It was about um, people who had lived in New York and had ended up moving to Minneapolis and were trying to start their lives over again in Minneapolis. And it was called Manhattan Transfers. Um, They said they didn't have any money for expenses. So I kind of took my last $300 and flew to Minneapolis and wrote the story. And when I came back, they loved it. And it was the story that was on the cover of the second section of the paper that was called The Observatory. And, you know, I think it was a big, like, 2,500 or 3,000 word piece. It got a lot of attention. So I I kept writing for them. So uh, after I've been writing for them for a year and a half, they asked me if I wanted to have my own column, and that was Sex in the City. And I started writing Sex in the City when I was 34. Um, so it was, you know, after a lot of hard work and, you know, struggling that I landed the column. And I think because I had written so many pieces in you know, the 1980s about what was then contemporary women, I just felt when I got that column that I knew exactly what to do with it. And the column was really, you know, social and cultural anthropology. Um, And it was just, you know, the kind of, just the kind of writing that I'd honestly been doing for all my life. Um, And I have found things that I've written when I was in, my mid twenties, and and I mean the thing that's crazy to me is I you know I have the same voice, and I write about the same things and the same topics. So it's just something that I, I think you know as a writer you're you're kind of you know you're born with it, and you know I can't really change it that much. Uh, another question, yes. And we used to do a stage for a British band called Pink Floyd. I hope you, you know that. And it was night in Houston, first concert, and I'm talking to David Gilmer. And he came very personal, and he looked at me and he's saying, when they finish Dark Side of the Moon, in three, four months, they figure out they're never gonna write something like that, better than that, and I'm going to slide down. And eventually, bands split apart. Do you have the same feeling about sex? This is your ultimate achievement, and then everything, but you, I'm not going to offend you, right? No. I, Do you, you have know, the same feeling as, as an author? You know, I, I, I actually don't. Um, for me, you know, I have a, a very strong core, and for me, I just, I'm constantly interested in every new book that I'm writing. Um, I'm, I'm pretty focused as a novelist, and I just try to make each book the best that I can make it. And, and actually, with each book, you know, one learns more and more as a writer, and, and one sets, you know, newer and harder challenges for oneself. So, um, you know, I'm, you know, that's really what, that's really what drives me. And, you know, it's wonderful to 
have the success of of Sex and the City and Lipstick Jungle on you know in on the TV and um, you know in the movies, um, but I would I would still be doing the same thing no matter you know no matter what happened and you know it's wonderful to have just so many talented people work on my books and and you know bring them to life in another medium um at the same time you know i'm very focused on what i'm doing and always trying to trying to improve and and you know deal with new challenges in that project and in the process i think we have time for one more question yes applause yes, yes. Okay, do we have time for one more? One more question, yes, and here it is. It's a multi-part question. First of all, um, how much of yourself is in your characters? Do you base a lot of your characters on your friends, and do they ever get pissed? Um, who's your favorite character? And there was a fourth part, but I can't remember it right now. Um, okay, the, uh, the question is, are the characters based on... Me, my friends. Um, I, 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 well, you know, Sex and the City was my, my first book, and that is a book that was, it was it's really part journalism and, and part fiction. And, uh, you, you know, as, as many first-time authors, um, you know, the character of Carrie Bradshaw certainly was my alter ego. And, you know, there were many things, you know, in the column and, and subsequently in the TV series that, you know, happened to me. Um, you know, I had, I had a, you know, Mr. Big. Um, and, you know, and then part of the work in writing Sex in the City, I, I did interview people. And there were people who were dying to be in the column, Sex in the City. So, you know, I would interview them and I, I really would fictionalize their stories. Um, so that was a, a, you know, combination of, you know, different things that I observed, people coming to me with stories. Um, you know, after that, I, when I, at the end of, when I, I wrote Sex in the City for about a year and a half, and, and really like the last six months, the pieces were little short stories, um, some of which went on to become Four Blondes. So I think at that point, I, I really was, you know, had kind of switched from doing journalism to only completely doing fiction. And, I, I, you know, I think that... Um, you know, people always think that a novelist characters are, are based on real people, but they're actually not. They are, um, you know, they tend to be types of people that one observes. And, you know, the problem with, you know, the idea of, of basing a character on a real person is that as a novelist, you're never going to know a real person the way you can know your own fictional characters. And, and I think that a novelist, you know, it's like you need to know 
when your character was born, what their family was like. You know, you, you need to know the intimate details of your character's life, which is something that you're probably not going to be able to do with a, with a real person. So although the characters certainly feel real to me and hopefully feel real to the audience, um, they truly are fictional creations with, you know, their own very specific backgrounds and, you know, details of their lives. I mean, for instance, you know, James and, and Mindy Gooch, uh, like one of the fun parts of their, well, most of One Fifth was really fun, but uh, one of my favorite parts is, you know, Mindy and James's Christmas traditions and, and how their holiday traditions are different and how they approach the holidays and and what their holidays were like as kids and and you know how that had affected you know their their traditions as as a family and you know that's something that you just you you never know um you know if you're basing it on a real person you're never going to know those details so um so they are completely fictional characters and you know in terms of of favorite characters, um, I, you know, I, I kind of like the dark characters. I love Janie Wilcox, um, and and I love Mindy Gooch. Um, I don't know. I love Lola Fabricant in One Fifth Avenue. She's so naughty. Um, so I don't. I have a tendency to kind of like the darker characters. That's just my my sort of personal taste I guess so anyway I want to thank you all for coming and I hope you enjoy the book once again we want to thank Candace Bushnell you've been a, a lovely audience uh, One Fifth Avenue is available as an audiobook download on the iTunes store in addition to several of other uh, other of Candace's work uh, thank you and have a good evening we'll see you next time This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store in New York's Soho District. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.